Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast, where we bring together prospects, editors and experts and ask, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect, a magazine that covers the intellectual horizon. And later in this programme, we speak to DJ Taylor on the subject of rock and roll and writing. The music itself, he says, is on the way down. The magazines aren't what they used to be, but there's still an awful lot of sharp pens around. What have they got to write about? Well, I'm told by people in the music business that these days, quite a lot of the money, actual money, is to be made out of what's called heritage rock. But before we get to that, I'm joined by Alex Dean, who's Prospect's great politics watcher, and he's with me now. Alex, um, every week uh, we end up worrying about talking about Brexit, but Theresa May did a strange little broadcast in which she said, um, it's kind of a done deal now. The law, the Brexit law, it's on the statute book. Does that change anything? Um, I think it's a crucial step in the process we had to kind of get that into the statute book and and in a sense i think even remainers um will be glad that we have just because of the uh impulse to kind of resist chaos (laughs) um but that doesn't mean that it's kind of an easy ride at all from here on or that the legislative legwork is done um there's a trade bill a customs bill yet to go through the commons uh and indeed the lords and that's going to be um I think we can expect some real fireworks there too. And she tweeted this video in which it has to be said she looked like someone who'd been taken hostage and had a number of guns pointed at her off camera and was saying, it's a great Brexit, a Brexit that we now can get on with delivering the people's choice. And it had a sort of air of paper triumph, but a lot of terror about what comes next about it. I think that's Theresa May's kind of, um, that's quite on brand for Theresa May at the moment. That's her general approach. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's how we all saw it too. Um, she kind of is, is pressing ahead because she feels boxed in by different forces, some political, some I think are kind of, she has a sense of duty, feels that we really do need to implement the referendum results. Um, but she's not enjoying, <laughs> not enjoying her time in number 10 at the moment, I don't think. And just after all those endless and confusing arguments about what a meaningful vote means, you think that there could still be a crunch and the Brexit that she settled on could still be unpicked in Parliament this autumn. Absolutely. So um, each time a Brexit bill arrives in the Commons, um, there's the potential and kind of space for MPs to create a nuisance. We saw that with the withdrawal bill, and they did kind of create a nuisance, but then backed down at the last minute. Um, As far as... kind of tricky to make predictions but I'm not at all convinced that they're going to back down next time um there's issues of the utmost importance um in the national interest on issues as big as the customs union and the single market 
which MPs yet to re- yet to really have their say on. Um, they very much will have their say once these trade and customs bill, and indeed there's some more legislation too. It's it, I think it's a bit of a misconception that the withdrawal bill is uh, it's all united in that. There's a huge tangle of legislation. Okay, so in other words, uh, as you continue to watch at Westminster, it's still going to be very largely about Brexit. Although this week they did seem to do something that wasn't to do with Brexit at all. It's true. It's true. Politics seems utterly dominated by the Brexit question at the moment. But um, this week, MPs voted to approve a third runway at Heathrow. Um, so I think enormously contentious issue. Um, you know, there were protesters in Parliament lying down on the floor trying to stop MPs coming through the lobby and, uh, and so on. Um, but I think one thing maybe everyone, wherever you are on the political divide, can take from that um, kind of take a little bit of optimism from that is the fact that finally we've done something that isn't Brexit related. Although have we done it? There's still talk of judicial review and God knows yeah, what. Yeah, I mean, I'd be very surprised if this is the last. I mean, it's obviously not going to be the last we, we hear of it um, or indeed the... It's a start, you know, it's a step in the pro- process rather than um, rather than the end. I think kind of an unholy alliance of some Greens and Sadiq Khan are planning to uh, take the government to the High Court over, um, you know, all sorts of questions over air air pollution and noise pollution and so on so again that's something else with a a a, a world to go but good to see people talking about something that isn't brexit one person who wasn't there to talk about it was boris johnson going to talk to the deputy foreign minister i think of afghanistan and the president yeah it was a couple a couple of high profile meetings he had there convenient meetings or there is a kind of widespread if not universal suspicion uh in westminster including amongst you know, his fellow Tory MPs, um, that it was kind of a last minute thing um, arranged conveniently to give him an excuse not to have to vote on Heathrow because it would be incredibly awkward if he did have to vote on Heathrow because um, he's previously said he'd, I think the phrase was lie down in front of the diggers um, to stop the build or lie down in front of the bulldozers Mm -hmm. um, to stop the the actual physical building of the runway. But it was a whipped vote uh, for the Tory half, at least, I think. Labour gave a free vote. Um, so it would have put him in an incredibly awkward position. He would have had to resign. Or, you know. But it brings back, doesn't it, that we had a, two years ago those questions about what you might call the character thing. He's written a biography about Churchill, but Churchill probably would have been wanting to be there to say never surrender to Heathrow. And yeah, it wasn't very classy, was it? It wasn't very... Maybe makes you wonder whether he's really going to make any great stands on Brexit or <laughs> anything else. What we've seen from Boris and indeed... Uh, to be honest, quite a lot of the European research group, that group of Jacob Rees-Mogg-led backbenchers, is a lot of sabre-rattling. Are they going to really bring the government down? I'm sceptical. Depends on whether or not they've got the numbers. But someone who did have the numbers this week was the England football team winning 6-1 against Panama. I don't know anything about football. I don't know if it's coming home or not. But Alex, if it did, let's imagine... Um, if England were to um, get to the final, win the World Cup, would there be a big political effect of that? I think there definitely would. Um, I think there's a real sense in British politics, but also just in British public life and, you know, in Britain in general at the moment, um, there's a real sense of kind of fatigue um, contributed to in no small part by the political environment. And I think that would really be lifted um, and we'd all be quite buoyed. Um if the England team kind of did the did the surprising thing and 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 actually ended up um, going quite far in the tournament, you said you don't know about football, but one thing you certainly do know about is kind of political history. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, but there's there's a famous example, isn't there, with Harold Wilson in the World Cup and a, th- a theory that <laughs> uh, he did he lose? Bec- and there's a theory that he lost because England went out of the World Cup just before the election or something. Now, I, it, certainly in in 1966, when uh, Harold Wilson was in and Labour won, he was sort of like, "Have you noticed that we only win when there's a Labour government?" Sort of very uh, cheeky point to make that he wasn't above making. <laughs> Um, and I believe that in 1970, when there would have been a lot of hype because England were in as defending champions, but then went out, uh, there was a feeling that in the election, that I think was in June of that year, um, that uh, in England crashing out had uh, not helped the government of the day. OK, so we know that there's at least some precedent for theories like this swirling round. So hopefully I'm not going completely out on a limb by saying that I think that British politics would be lifted and maybe the government would be lifted um, if, if the England football team does deliver. Well, thanks very much, Alex. And now over to my colleague, Samir Rahim, who a little earlier was speaking to DJ Taylor. David, thank you so much for joining us. Um, This month in Prospect, you've got an article on what uh, could be described as a rather curious genre, uh, the rock memoir. Um, We might think of it as a somewhat unsophisticated, self-glorying type of book. But actually, you say that we're living through a a golden age of rock writing. Is that right? I think we are, because um, I, I suppose some historical context is in order here. I mean, I grew up in my late teens as being what was called an, an NME kid, meaning that you read the New Musical Express. And to me, uh, at the end of the 1970s, this was a kind of cornucopia of, of to me, brilliant journalism by people like Charles Shaw Murray and Mick Farron and, and writers like that. Nick Kent was another one, another famous name from the age. But the thing about all these people was, of course, that 40 years ago, they were just really confined to their own particular literary quadrants. I mean, you very rarely saw proper reviews of of concerts or albums in serious, inverted commas, newspapers. And you very rarely saw what one might call serious books about rock and roll published by mainstream publishers and reviewed in mainstream publications. Now, that's all changed. You know, we live in an era where a 600-page egghead book about the formerly obscure German avant-garde um, avant-garde rock band can can get published by Faber and reviewed in every broadsheet newspaper in the country so things have changed remarkably in the last three four decades but enemy of course is now uh, no more um, and there was a welter of nostalgia from as you say mainly uh, middle-aged uh, male um, uh, rock fans um, is that element of looking back on nostalgia a vital part really of um, uh, of the rock memoir Well, I'm told by people in the music business that these days quite a lot of the money, actual money, is to be made out of what's called heritage rock, which is, uh, you know, catered for by the the box set reissues, by the Rolling Stones on tour, by the adult music magazines like Mojo and Uncut. And however devoted a fan you are of these things, it's you you can't help but notice how repetitive it all is. And it's, you know, Pink Floyd are on the cover again, and uh, we're now rehearsing, uh, we're now reprising had the Beatles made Abbey Road for the 16th or 17th time. And it's very backward looking. But I, I think this is this is almost inevitable because that generation grew up. I suppose you were not quite my generation, in, uh, you know, despite being deep into middle age. I'm still quite young for the sort of 60s rock heritage. That generation grew up. And naturally to them, you know, rock and roll was at its great. It's reached its sort of high point at the end of the 1960s. And it's been downhill all the way since then. 
uh, to them it's the, it's the kind of classic artistic parabola you know you reach that high point late 60s and then you start slowly gently traveling down the other side and you write about this special compact that the fan has with the has with the band and the desperation to find out anything that they can possibly uh, find out about um, them and, and I suppose that still exists today but uh, the, the star will sort of immediately give you the post on Instagram or whatever so they can have a sort of direct and quite controlled communication um, with their fans but in those days the magazine really was the intermediary that controlled that uh, interaction wasn't it? That's right. I mean, when I was a when I was a boy at school, you were desperate for information about your your idols, your heroes, the band that you followed, and you always had to have a band. You know, there was one group that you followed more than any other one. There's this kind of affiliation in the same way that you followed a football team or you liked a particular writer. Um, and the problem was that there was so little information available in those days. Uh, as you say, you couldn't, as sometimes happens these days, you couldn't send, you couldn't tweet after a gig that you'd really enjoyed it and then actually get a tweet back from the band, as happened <laughs> to me recently at a field music gig. But in those days, you know, you read the NME and uh, you listened to John Peel in the evenings and those two media were, were enough to, to, to give a band a reputation. And sometimes, you know, they... Uh, the secretaries of um, uh, university and entertainment secretaries would sometimes book groups on the strength of their being on John Peel, and um, you could. There was a. There was the point that survivors of that era always make to me when you talk is there was a kind of infrastructure there that that allowed sort of bands to break that involved people to find out about them. They created a, a kind of community, you know, a community of interest between, as you say, between the fan. Uh, the rock writer, the group itself, and I, I don't think that exists anymore now. I think that's gone in the in the, in the internet age, in the age of instant communications. Yeah, I was reading the other day that um, Taylor Swift was recently over in this country. Some of her gigs hadn't actually sold out, and that one of the reasons that uh, somebody was putting forward was that she'd refused to do any you know local radio or she'd refused to get in contact with her fans in a, on the sort of slightly sort of uh, uh, less highfalutin mediums um, so maybe there's a lesson there in um, uh, from today's modern rock stars well I think there is because when you read the accounts of how for example one of the most successful English groups of all of the early 1970s Led Zeppelin and how they built up their reputation in America, where they made most of their money, was they did it very carefully and in some ways quite stealthily. You know, they released tracks gradually to sort of college radio stations. They did cultivate local media. They made sure that when they turned up in a particular city in America, all the local disc jockeys were on their side, knew about them, you know, had free merchandising, were there to plug their records. And they created this ordinary... They were, they were very sort of remote and elusive band, but... Unlike some of today's more sort of antiseptic rock stars, they weren't above actually making themselves available to the fans when it counted, you know, and showing that their interests were the fans. And there was, as I, as I, as I talked previously, this, this compact, this sort of shared thing that um, there was a, a rather, it was a rather interesting sort of slate of hand that was practiced there. And I think in the 70s that on the one hand, um, you know, the groups were extraordinary sort of um, extraordinary figures living in the Empyrean on their on their jets and on their on their yachts and so forth. And yet when it came down to it, they were ordinary blokes. And you saw Rod Stewart on top of the pop sort of kicking a football around and sort of looking like a lad on Hampstead Heath. It was quite a difficult trick to bring off, but I think it was easier to bring off in the 1970s. A key sort of intermediary figure who you touch on in the piece um, is is the publicist. And um, you talk about uh, uh, um, Derek Taylor, 
uh, who organised the sort of uh, John Lennon interview in, in, in Rolling Stone. And that sort of figure of, of, of an intermediary who um, can plot and plan all these um, uh, all these interactions is, is quite key, isn't it? And of course, in your in your new novel, Rock and Roll is Life, you take the figure of uh, a, a publicist as the person who, through whose eyes we see uh, your fictional band. I think you're right. I think there are two answers to that point. One, which is in the case of uh, you know, the groups of the 60s and early 70s, uh, so much, it was everything was happening at such a terrific rate of knots, at such a speed. So much of what happened in the music industry in that period was, was ad hoc. You know, you released a record, you put it out, three weeks later you're in the charts, four weeks after that your career might actually be over. Things were happening so speedily. So some of the most successful book groups of the periods were ones which had very astute people behind them, building reputations, talking to the right people, getting... I mean, Derek, what Derek Taylor did for the Beatles in the early days was extraordinary and enabled him... Uh, when he was subsequently their, their publicist, when they began the Apple Corporation in the late 60s, to uh, to do extraordinary things with journalists who trusted him. The band trusted him and the journalists trusted him. So he was this extraordinarily potent interface between the two in a way I think that very few other people realize, managed to do at the time. Uh, in the case of my novel, Rock and Roll is Life, um, I, I decided that I ought to have a publicist for the hero because... I needed someone with a bit of detachment, um, uh, someone who was close enough to the band to be able to, in this case, are called the fictitious group called the Helium Kids, who are close enough to them to be able to see what's happening, but is not so overwhelmed that, that he can't be reasonably objective. I mean, I think it'd be very difficult to write a, a novel about rock and roll through the perspective of, let's say, a permanently stoned lead guitarist. You just wouldn't, you know, you just wouldn't be able to have the layer of perception that you need uh, for an exercise of this kind, and your publicist um, hails from from Norwich, and um, you he, do write you do write in the piece about um, the sort of rock and roll, the fulfilment of sort of suburban dreams. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think um, I think the role of the suburbs in um, in Eng well in English in British life generally, let alone music, is very underrated because um, although a lot of groups come from uh, you know from big cities and write about the experience of, of, of living and working sometimes in the big city, there is this great sort of wistful yearning of people outside that sort of central core. I mean, the people who supported the, who followed the Sex Pistols around in the early days were from Bromley, you know, Susie Sue and her friends, who were called known as the Bromley Contingent. And I noticed there's so many, Masuede are an obvious, uh, one, of the, the, one of the books mentioned in the piece to which you refer was Brett Anderson's. He grew up in Haywards Heath. But you can make the same point about The Cure, who I think came from Crawley, also in Surrey, and it's forgotten. It's sometimes forgotten. I mean, Joy Division, for example, always regarded as a Manchester band, but I think Ian Curtis actually came from Macclesfield. A lot of it's from people on the margins looking in, thinking, "Ooh, there's the city. I've got to get." I mean, uh, famous lines that Paul Weller of the Jam wrote in their first single, "In the City," um, <clears throat> where he says something like, "I know you from. I know I'm from Woking, and you think I'm a fraud, but my heart is in the city where it belongs." Mm. It's the suburbanite trying to get in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Hanif Qureshi's novel, The Buddha of Suburbia, that's all about that, isn't it? And that's sort of the David Oh, Bowie absolutely. So that that summarises an yeah. awful lot of it, that, that Qureshi novel, yes. Some of the memoirs you look at naturally have a lot of you know, salacious stories. And that's, let's be honest, one of the reasons why people read these books, to find out what's going on tour and, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, and you, you look at a sort of an updated version of Pamela DeBar's I'm With The Band, Confessions of a Groupie. Um, mm. and, and, and I wonder whether rereading it, reading it now in a sort of different context when we're thinking a little bit more about sort of, you know, exploitation or, or the possibility of um, 
dodgy goings on, whether whether there's a different tenor, where can we actually you know enjoy these in the way that perhaps we once did? I find the tone of these grouping memoirs, especially the updated ones, which Pamela Desvaz is very uncertain because there's an awful lot of retrospective glossing going on. Uh, you know, the, the, the Pamela de Vars, for example, the original, it's just basically, you know, the, originally it was just, uh, there, there's a very kind of, it's slightly ambiguous because on the one hand, you know, you are, you know, you are making yourselves available to rock stars. On the other hand, you're trying to convince your reader that you're <clears throat> having fun, that you are exploiting the situation as much as being exploited by it. And, um, I find the tone is sometimes a bit shaky. It's like uh, the recent the memoir a couple of years ago by um, Viv Albertine, who used to be in the Slits, where you know she is in a feminist she is in a feminist punk band. The sisters are doing it for their, themselves, but she still ends up you know have, virtually sort of thinking that she is somehow obligated to have oral sex with Johnny Rotten because he's asked her to, and um, you know that's the kind of situation. It's still one in which. Freedom for women really means the freedom to be exploited by men. So I, I do find that the tone slightly equivocal about these kind of books. And it's very interesting to, to see the retrospective. Uh, certainly, Pamela Debar's looking back is, I think, much more uh, keen on how sort of liberated and forward thinking and positive she was than she may well have been at the time. It's funny that rock stars seem to have been given slightly a sort of free pass in the discussions over Me Too and all the... Uh, and all the rest of it. Do you think this just we still put them on this pedestal, or, or, or we don't allow ourselves to apply the same, uh, you know, rules of conduct that we do on everyone else? It's very difficult to make those kind of judgments because there there were people, you know, there were women around at the time. I think you knew uh, who knew exactly what they were doing and who they were doing it with. I mean, Grace Slick, for example, of Jefferson Airplane is an obvious example. And I don't think she was particularly being exploited. I think she was you know, confident enough to make her own decisions and, and sort of abide by the choices she made. But in terms of the rock star generally, um, so much of it, you know, is is veiled in mystery. We don't actually know what went on and with whom. And uh, there is this kind of, um, that, that sort of access all areas um, mystique that rises above the city, uh, rises above the, above the 60s is, as I think made people sort of slightly slightly reluctant to sort of jump in there and apportion blame and say that X was a bad man or that Y should no longer be allowed to tour. And it's, it's quite interesting when um, some of the, the bygone attitudes come face to face with modern reality, you know, with modern realities and changing sort of moral perceptions. And I always remember an extremely, well, not amusing for her, but I remember a sensation once being caused about a quarter of a century ago when um, Favour and Favour <coughs> were publishing Chuck Berry's autobiography. And they arrived at the press conference, Berry, um, uh, you know, Berry and his female publicist from Favour, who marched into the room, slapped the table and said to the journalist, I'd just like you all to know that this man tried to sexually assault me in the back of the cab. And Chuck Berry just kind of grinned, you know, because he was Chuck Berry. What did he care? But the favoured publicist was rightfully outraged and told everybody. And so there was this very interesting kind of clash of two, you know, two cultures, two time frames meeting in this this very embarrassed press conference. It's the final point. It's still the case that the, the old fashioned, uh, unreflective rock and roll memoir still exists and it's still happening. You talk about a, a character from Slade. 
uh, right at the end there. Dave Hill. Well, I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I gather that uh, Kenny Jones of The Faces, The Small Faces and The Who, has just written his memoirs. They came too late for me to cover them in the piece that I did for you. But I'd be very interested to read them because he's been around since the early 1960s. And I have a suspicion from some of the re reviews that his position is, how shall we say, a little less uh, reconstructed than some of his co-evils. But uh, the Dave, Dave Hill's member, Dave Slade, were the first band I ever really liked back in the 1970s. And uh, Dave Hill's memoir is an old-fashioned, it's rags to riches. You know, he's, uh, he bought, grew up in an extremely poor West Midlands home. Uh, Fifteen years later, he's got a, a fleet of Rolls Royces you know, with the number plate Yob One on them. Enoch Powell, Powell is just his mother's MP, you know, no, no, no more than that. And uh, he, uh, and yet he redeems it all with a kind of charm. You know, he is, according to his lights, he has succeeded. He doesn't seem to have been nasty to anybody on the way up. He's still going at the age of something like 72, and he's still making a reasonable amount of money. So in some ways, it's rather rather wonderful that that kind of book and that kind of life still gets still appears, I think. Thank you, David. Samir Rahim talking to DJ Taylor, whose new book, Rock and Roll Life, uh, is out now, and whose article on the art of rock and roll writing can be found in the latest issue of Prospects, which is in the shops now. This month's cover story is on the Conservative Party. If you want to know the deep history of Tory troubles over Europe, then do pick up a copy. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect. The producer was Jay Elwes, and you can read more about politics, rock and roll, and more besides on our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And you might also know, while you're there, that our subscription rates are very reasonable indeed. So please be sure to tune in again soon to the Prospect Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.